to feel not. Episode 163. I have an inkling you'll like this one. The Feel Nots Podcast. Christian news from around the globe. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Explore the vast reaches of God's word. Hello, all you Theonarnians out there. I'm David Gaddy. I'm Jeremiah Orr. Together we are the Theonauts. Hey, David. Nailed it that time. Yeah. I awesome. saw you checking your glasses. Were you able to read your notes, or do you need? I'm trying to. Do you need a, a magnifying glass? Yeah, these are my readers. Reading. I need to break down and get <laughs> bifocals. It's like you can't do that because that would be like giving admitting in, that, giving in. that I'm old. That's right. No, uh, so I so I was just watching. This reminds me. I was watching the latest um, season. Of the X Files. Oh which yeah, it's a thing still. Are you liking it? Uh, yes and no. Like okay. part of it is horrible. <laughs> like the first two episodes, I was like, seriously, if this is what you're going to do with it, don't bring it back. <laughs> it's horrible. And I haven't got to the last episode yet, but I hear it's in the same vein. Oh wow. Uh, but all the ones in between Are were good. really good. Wow. Like it was night and day. Wow. And uh, so I've really been enjoying what I'd call the episodic. Mm-hmm. Episodes like sure. they're standalone stories. Right, they're you don't not, need the yeah. They don't congruency of the story. Right, mm-hmm. and it's like seems like whenever the writers tried to do this long mythology, they goof it all up. Yeah. Anyway, so I was watching the second to the last episode of the season um, last night, mm-hmm. and in it, Mulder. Of course, you know this is like what thirty years after the original launch right. of the series. Uh, so Mulder is like doing the same thing. He's got like. Reader glasses <laughs> all throughout the show. He's having to pull them out and put them on to read his phone. Sure, and he's like grumping about it the whole time. And of course, it plays into the storyline because the storyline is about um, this lady who is harvesting organs to stay young forever. <laughs> it's kind of a vampiric thing. Sure, stay beautiful, right. stay young. And so they're doing the counterpoint, you know, position with right. him and and. Whining about his age and his sure. and his eyes and <laughs> so that's what that reminded me of. But anyway, um, wow. So I have found out that if I put these readers on top of my actual prescription glasses, that's the perfect best results. Yeah, you need bifocals. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't like old Ben Franklin over <laughs> here. Well, I no. I just the. The optometrist, it was the one who advised me. He was like, nah, you don't need bifocals. Here, just keep this this pair for reading and this pair for uh, distance. Well, thanks, but that's difficult to swap them out all the time. Right, seriously. Anyway. So how you doing? Oh, pretty good, man. We just had all kinds of hail hit us here in in North Texas. I was driving home, and I was like caught in the center of it. it I I thought there was going to be a tornado come by because of the blowing wind and the hail and mm. couldn't go into the house. It's crazy. Yeah. So, you know, it's that season again. Yes. How fun. So, and I'm, I'm pretty sure, judging by the the pictures that Melanie sent me, our house is probably going to need 
repair. Some repair. How to deal. <laughs> well, you had a leak up here in the uh, sound room, too. Yeah, but that's because this building's old. Yeah. So. Ancient. But you never can tell. It is. It's like 150 years old. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Pretty cool. So how, how about you? Uh, good. Uh, you know, I got back from an awesome trip to San Antonio last week mm-hmm. and uh, saw all these great things that made me want to become a Texan even more. And uh, let's see, we stopped in Austin and did all this stuff. Wow. I was like, imp- I was super impressed. You're posting pictures from... Um, <laughs> You know, the grave sites of great Texans. The Royals, yeah. who, who the uh, Texas Stadium is named after. Yes, yeah, yeah. You got to pay your respects in some aspect of it, but, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I was oh, impressed. Well. I was saw like... Chris Kyle's grave. That was kind of neat. Oh, did you? Yeah. And uh, Stephen F. Austin mm-hmm. and all these wonderful people. Saw Tom Landry's grave. That was cool. Oh, is it down there too? Yeah, the cemetery was my favorite part by far. I I went to LBJ Memorial Library. I went to the on the campus state capitol. Yes, on the of the campus. university, the great they didn't university tell me that. of Texas. <laughs> great, <laughs> whatever. Anyways, just so, keeping it weird. Yeah, and there's a uh, ore buried in the state cemetery mm. and so he you know you have to be some kind of service to texas or some kind of notoriety in to texas get, to, to get, get in that cer- yeah that cemetery and so i'm gonna research that and find out what the ore was and who who that was and if it's any relation so kind of excited about that took a picture of it so you know cool now i'm an official texan plant my lone star state Woo-hoo! flag the stars at night are big <laughs> and bright Deep in heart, Texas. <laughs> Anyways. It's my favorite part of the... Pee-wee Herman. Pee-wee Herman. <laughs> it's the best part of that whole entire thing. Actually, that movie is great from start to oh, finish. Oh, I know. <laughs> it's it's such a it's <laughs> such an underrated flick. Tim Burton. <laughs> is it Tim Burton? Yeah, yes. Man, that clown bicycle dream nightmare <laughs> gave me nightmares when I was a kid watching that. I grew up in Pee Wee Hermanville. You know what I mean? Yeah. That was my era. Like and you were so, a child during all that. Yes. Yeah. And so I loved Pee Wee's Playhouse. I used to watch that all the time. The word of the day. Ah! <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and then we, let's see, we went to a really good concert on oh my Saturday. Gosh. Yes. We went and saw Red, Red mm. and Lacey Sturm. She's amazing, by and the way. Righteous Vendetta. Yes. So. I had a lot of fun. Oh, Moshed yeah. my heart out and. Jumped up and down and did pretty well the next day. I didn't even feel it that bad. That's so. good. Yeah. Yeah. It's doing good. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. A little place in um, um, a new venue. Yeah. Down in... Uh, Is it connected to the bomb factory? Is it the same? Yeah. Well, it's the same people own it. Oh, yeah. So apparently they just bought the building next door. Right. For spillover and sure. do more concerts there. Yeah. So, but I, I like those standing room only, small venues like sure. that. It's fun stuff. Awesome. Anyways, should we get to this one? It's going to be yeah, it's gonna be awesome long one, but yeah, amazing. Be. So Clive Staples Lewis. Yes. the Now, this is the most modern guy that we've covered in our little oh yeah well we're jumping almost a thousand years aren't we yeah so pretty crazy um, going from saint frank to uh who was our next one 
Who'd we do? Oh, Augustine. Augustine, and then jumping all the way up to C.S. Lewis. So what was your first exposure to C.S. Lewis? Do you remember? Hmm, let me think for a second. I think it was screw tape. Really? Mm-hmm. That's unusual for the most part. Yeah. Most people are going to say language in the wardrobe. Yeah, whenever I was, okay, paint the scene. <laughs> Chubby little fat kid. <laughs> Jonesing on, on uh, Ninja Turtles. Ten years old. <laughs> Christmas morning, <laughs> all I wanted, all I wanted in the world was an NES. I wanted a Nintendo Entertainment System. Okay. My parents were yeah. poor. My mom's a teacher, my dad a preacher, and we didn't have any money. And we lived in a, a, a you know, a parsonage and barely yeah. survived. And it was awesome. <clears throat> I had an awesome childhood. Christmas morning, I come down there expecting a 8-bit. NES, yeah, with my Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt with a gun. So excited! Got some Ninja Turtles. It was good. And uh, then I got two presents, and they were my main presents. And I opened them up, <laughs> like and it, big presents. And it wasn't an NES. It was J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy with the Hobbit book set. Wow! And the Chronicles of Narnia. Book set. Wow. So all of them? Yes. I got all of them that Christmas. And Sweet. I was pissed. <laughs> <laughs> so like, you know, I was like, what? You know, any 10-year-old boy, I'm like, I guess I'll go to my friend's house and play his new Nintendo, mom and dad. Yeah. But you know, uh, so that like, evening. Go to your room. You know, they were. Read they, Narnia. Exactly. So. They were really pushing on me to to read because I was a terrible reader. Uh, I had to take, I, I got dropped down to the uh, special ed class mm. uh, for reading around that age, and just yeah. hated it. So, and so they gave you Tolkien. Yeah, I mean, Lewis is tough Tolkien. for that age. Yeah, but Tolkien is a step above. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. I cracked open. I remember this vividly. I cracked open Tolkien. Uh, I, I started reading The Hobbit, and I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, I put that away really fast. Like, it's yeah. just too Which much. Which is more approachable yeah. as a child than right. and The Lord of the Rings. There was no way I could do The Lord of the Rings yet. And so then I took out The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm-hmm. Back then, they did the book set. Today, they do it backwards. I well, they like do the it they... in chronological order now. Right. Not... They start with The Magician's Nephew yes. instead of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But back then, and I used to fight people about that saying mm-hmm. no you need to start with the line with the wardrobe and then work your way back to it because yeah, it's yeah. so much cooler when he reveals it anyway it's so, like star wars yes you need to watch episode four first exactly yeah so i read the line the witch in the wardrobe over a matter of months it took me a while to get through it because mm-hmm. i was a terrible reader but it awoke in me a voracious appetite for reading mm-hmm. and it's the reason i majored in english really if you if you can trace it all the way back to that. Yeah. Like I fell in love with books. And so I devoured that entire series and lived it mm-hmm. like in my room, on my bed every night, living Chronicles of Narnia and blown away, weeping when Aslan was killed. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, it was just yeah. amazing. And that's my first taste of C.S. Lewis. To me, uh, the that series, and I know, I mean, it's 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 a children's series. Mm-hmm. It's way when you look at it, is way over um, 
analogy. It's it's just a straight yeah, up yeah, analogy. Very much. And Although Lewis would argue that. Yes, he would. But I would say definitely I would agree with Tolkien and say, <laughs> yeah, this is straight up all it is is analogy. Yeah. But uh, I mean, I just loved it. Mm-hmm. I I wanted to be those kids. I reenacted Narnia in my backyard. You know what I mean? Yeah. They became heroes. And so. That's awesome. Yeah. I I actually didn't experience it till later in life. Mm -hmm. Um, Mainly because my childhood was, I mean, we were a religious family, but we were religious. I mean, it was church related. Sure. There wasn't like when we were at the house, it was pop culture. Right. I mean, we, my mom and dad weren't pushing any Christian literature. <laughs> they didn't make me listen to Christian music. Wow. I mean, or anything like that. I mean, I was just like straight up listening to the police and the cars. And <laughs> I mean, that was my, my, uh, I, that was high school, but sure. <clears throat> even before that, you know, I, I, I was listening to sticks in the seventies. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, I was never like made to to read these books. The uh, the closest thing for me would would have been uh, Madeline Langle's um, uh, Wrinkle in Time. Oh, you know, I, I read love that. that book, yeah. Oh, and by the way, which one of these books I've got here, uh, Grief Observed, has a forward by her. Really? Yes, and it's really good too. Um, but anyway, um, so yeah, I didn't really until my interest in theology. Mm-hmm. That's whenever I got into Lewis, okay. and, and so I guess that's why that sc- makes sense. Screw tape was um, was cool sounding to me because it's oh, one demon writing to another demon. Yes, that's cool. Let me read that because I'd already. I mean, <laughs> Let me put I, on Slayer and listen to this. I'd been past my Stephen sure. King phase, you know, all this, and so that just s- seemed to hit right close, and I was blown away. Sure, but by, by that the, the level. Of wisdom. Oh, I know. Like it, it, it goes beyond. Like it's not theology necessarily. It's not about knowledge as much as it's about the application. Yeah. Like it's, it is true wisdom. Yeah. And turned backwards. Yeah. Like you're reading it in the negative because you're listening to it from the from the viewpoint of the demons. Right. And which makes it so. Um, applicable yeah because it's like oh yes that's why yeah and i remember like because you know you grow up thinking gluttony is the love of food and i think of a glutton as being a large person you know (laughs) stuff in their face sure and then he turns it around and he's like no 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 that's too obvious uh let's let's this is this is how you get someone attached to gluttony make them just eat a little toast Mm but make them so picky about it mm. that they don't want it any way except for their own particular way. Right. And so it's like they're so obsessed with how their food is prepared right. that you aren't obs- you aren't thinking of anything else. Yes. Therefore, it becomes an idol to you. And so that was like a form of gluttony that is sneaky. Right. And that's the whole premise of the book is that sin sneaks up on you. And that whole thing about, you know, uh, the... The, the fastest way to hell is, you know, like one turn at a time or sure. whatever. The slow road is the surest road. Right. To and uh, <clears throat> anyway, it was just, that's what got me hooked. And then, of course, I dove in. I, I just started devouring it after that, you know, went through the Narnian books. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, of course, his apologetics. 
which mere Christianity is just brilliant. Oh yes, and um, I it's the uh, for me it's it's the best. He makes the best argument ever on the morals, mm-hmm. and so we'll hit that. But yeah, so anyways, that's that's who we're going to be discussing today. Yeah. And without so we decided to do this chronologically and look at his, his life, life. Yeah. because he's a very <laughs> unique individual as um, as far as. Christian theology or Christian mm-hmm. um, writers go. I mean, he's just, he's a little different. Um, well, if you think about it, though, um, his journey doesn't differ too much from, say, St. Augustine's. Right. Yeah, that's very true. And and so that's really, I think, a, um, I think it's a good segue yeah. from St. Augustine to Lewis. And then it's not that I want to, you know, lift C.S. Lewis up as a saint or anything, but, um, but you know, they're all just guys. Sure. And, but the journey is from atheism to, you know, he considered himself the most reluctant convert. Right. And we'll, we'll talk about why as we go through. But anyway, let's start out um, about his, he was born in 1898. Right. In Northern Ireland in Belfast. Yes. Um, His father, Albert, and uh, Mother Florence, he had a brother, Warren, mm-hmm. um, and they had kind of a, a happy little life at the beginning. Okay, so his mother was a mathematician by trade. Yes. So very smart, uh, very smart family. Right. His mother was also, uh, he was very close to her. Yes. And much closer to her than he was his, his father. Yeah, his father wasn't a very emotional type of guy. Mm-hmm. Didn't share or you know handle the emotion side side of things very well. What did his father do? I didn't read that. I didn't uh, get it. I can't remember. Right off. Don't I didn't, you? I didn't Anybody tell us yes. what his father tell did? He was, his grandfather was a preacher, I right? <clears throat> On his mom's side, <clears throat> I think. So yeah, <laughs> so yeah, we're starting this off with a bang. We really did our homework. <laughs> 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 Anyways, uh, you know, in 1905, they moved in this little. Their their house called Little Lee, mm-hmm. and they just had they had a nice n- nice uh, a home, but they were stuck inside a lot. Yeah, um, and it was I mean early on that Lewis discovered a love for fantasy, right? Yeah, and well, first off, he changes his own name. Yes, by the time he's like six, I think. Yes, uh, if he was five years old. Oh, five. That's he's right. like, I don't like the name Clive. Yeah. I don't want to be called Clive. Yeah. Call me Jack. Yeah. And I've I've read that there was a dog uh that they owned and his name was Jaxie and the oh, dog yeah? died. Sounds like Indiana Jones. <laughs> Maybe. Like, we named the dog Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And he just he liked the name Jack and so call me Jack. And that's what they did from then on. Was, yeah. His name was Jack, you know, even though it was really Clive, which is kind of crazy. Well, if your name was Clive Staples. Right. You kind of, I mean, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> he and his brother Warren, uh, extremely close. Yes. Um, uh, you know, they they did everything together, especially in the early days. Um, and they they actually created together. Mm-hmm. Um, they would write together. And, right. And tell each other stories. And so... Uh, and this was their pastime. Like right. They, like, you know, you think of today, your kids are going to zone out in front of the TV or play video games or whatever. To them, you know, growing up in this damp, dark right. area, that like this was their, they would hang out in the attic mm-hmm. and they would write stories 
tell each other stories, draw. Yeah. And um, and so uh, uh, Warren at one point um, went out and and made this box full of like he went and he got all this bark and Looks moss like a diorama. Yeah. And he made like a little. Um, a box full of trees and this right. sort of thing. And he brought it in and it like really impressed uh, Jack. And so they were like, um, they would imagine a world. Yeah. Like it was a little stage. Yeah. And they would imagine this world in it. And so at this time, let's see, uh, Warren is eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jack is 11. And they begin writing... Um, Something that uh, they called boxing. Yes, you may think that Narnia was C.S. Lewis's first mm-hmm. mythical land, right? But it was actually boxing. It was when he was like eleven years old. Yes. Can you believe that? It's nuts. And, and so I have actually, I have a copy of this. Um, <laughs> so cool. I love it. Um, it's illustrated by them. Yes. Like it has their pictures that they drew. C.S. Lewis which, loved anthropomorphic animals. Oh yes, and giving animals, him clothes and 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 lives. Animals in suits. Yes. And so if you're a Narnian fa- fan, right. if you're a, a fan of Narnia, you the, you know right. about this anthropomorphic thing exactly. that happens in, even in, uh, we were just talking about this, in uh, Out of the Silent Planet. Oh, yeah. There's these otter-like the, creatures called right. Haras. Right. And they're anthropomorphic, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, but anyway, he had a tendency toward this. And he would write these, um, like, by the time they got to boxing, uh, they already had a big chunk of um, of story and history and yes. characters going. So I want to read you something. This is this is from boxing. It's actually uh, in the prelude to the stories that they wrote, um, <clears throat> and this is very similar. It's really cool. When we get later in life, he's gonna. We're gonna see that he and J.R.R. Tolkien are friends. Right. Okay. So if you know Tolkien's work, uh, our buddies up there in Tennessee can tell you all about it. Secret oh, yeah. Fire podcast. Go check it out. Uh, anyway, Tolkien didn't just sit down and start writing Lord of the Rings. He built a world. Right. And one of the best world builders ever. And he did so through language. He created a language. He created all this culture. And wrote a lot of that stuff down prior to actually telling the story. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing Lewis was doing at age eight. Right. Okay, so I want to read this just because the language from an eight-year-old, I want you to remember that what I'm reading is from the mind of an eight-year-old. Brilliant. Wrong glasses. (laughs) Come on, Mulder. Yes. Okay. So... It said, this is, I'm going to read to you, the history of mouse land from Stone Age to Bublish One, <laughs> 55 BC. Perhaps no greater country ever was seen in life than mouse land. <laughs> and yet one might have thought it might be ignorant owing to its long Stone Age, which lasted from BC 55 to 1307. However... This was not the case. Mouseland, we find, is the leading country of the globe. And in 51 BC, at first the Mouselanders were divided into small tribes under chiefs and continually fighting each other. 49 BC, Hakon, 
chief of the Blue Bottle tribe, marched to Dormy Castle and murdered the owner, namely Damus, for the sake of the castle and the domain, 47 BC. He then took the castle, after which it was known as Hakem's Palace. <laughs> Damus, in his life, had been chief of the Cozy tribe, and his death did not disperse his tribe. And when they heard of the murder, they were very angry and determined to revenge their king. So they rose against Hakem and met at Hakem's Palace in 43 BC, where the castle was laid in ruins and Hakem was slain after which the Cozy became the most powerful tribe oh in the land. Gosh. Wow. This is about half of the writing. There's Okay, so I, I teach fifth graders, and they couldn't attempt to write with that, I mean, that level of amazing intensity. I just, I'm blown away I know, it's by like, that guy. It's like the language. Right. Is, is, I mean, the the... The vernacular yeah. that he uses—it's very—and uh, of course, this—the creativity of coming up with all these—he's creating culture, a lineage, wars, <laughs> yeah. tribal uh, right. uh, divisions. Um, I mean, and it just goes on and on. He talks about how they changed their names from the Mouseland to the Bublis. And he comes up with with this history of how they went from in the Stone Age they were it was mouse land, but whenever they got to a civilized culture, they called themselves the Boobies. <laughs> anyway, it's it's just historical. Yeah, it's really awesome. Yeah, and then uh, it moves on. He he writes like there are pages of. Uh, like the next little section here is called History of the Animal Land, which is basically the seeds of Narnia. It's right. really cool. And uh, all the way back, I mean, we're going, we're going 1905, like yes. right around then. It's amazing. Nuts. So uh, that'll kind of give you an idea of the the intellect we're dealing with. Right. Here. So we mentioned he was really close to his mother. Yes. Right. Okay. So first, one, let's talk a little bit about joy. Because okay. that, because joy began with boxing. Yeah. Okay. So um, when Lewis talks about joy, um, he's not talking about happiness. What's he talking about, Jeremiah? Well, when Lewis is talking about joy, <laughs> I don't know. You're kind of putting me on the spot. He's talking about. <laughs> he's talking about. Well, what he does is he he has this uh, idea that. Joy is not he he realizes early on that joy is he he thinks that joy is the target, right? Yeah. So joy is is what he's pushing towards. Yes. This whole encompassing so satisfaction. As a child, right. He's looking in this box full of all this growth and life. Right. And he imagines escapism. Right. Right? And this gives him a joy. joy. Mm-hmm. But He's realizing the joy isn't the box. Right. It isn't the. It is the desire. Right. To be in the box. Right. A desire to be in another place. So there's got to be something beyond what what the thing is that's giving yes. you joy. Joy is, is not the destination. Joy is the desire for a destination. Right. That doesn't exist. Yeah. That ex- that extends beyond you, and so um, one of. Uh, C.S. Lewis's books is uh, Surprised by Joy, yes. where he talks about all this, and he is describing what joy means to him, and this started at age 
five. Think about, I mean, how many kids are thinking on this on this level at that age? Like there, like this is existentialism. Right. He's thinking there has to be more to life than reality. Right. There has to be something I'm longing for that is beyond this reality. Yes. And he calls that joy. joy. Yeah. And so we'll get a little long uh, uh, as we go through his story. We'll start to see he starts to make more connections with this understanding of joy. Sure. Uh, because the book, Surprised by Joy, is about his journey from atheism into Christianity right. which, or theism, which we'll get to in a minute. And he's always, <clears throat> he's captured, you'll see, throughout throughout his life by these moments of joy. Yes. But then he gets frustrated by them because he realizes that that's not, that's not the thing that he's after. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. So while we were talking about this, I printed this off to try and... Um, and to sum it up, because I thought it worded it really well, this is a description of um, of his book, Surprised by Joy. And it says, um, he does not describe his life. The principal theme of this book is joy. So he's talking about, this is kind of autobiographical. Yeah, book, but it's, it's almost his biography. But, it, it's, but autobiography. It, it's really more about what he was feeling whenever he was those ages. Right. It says, the book is joy as he defined it. The joy was a longing so intense for something so good and so high up, it couldn't be explained with words. He's struck with stabs of joy throughout his life. Right. And he finally finds it uh, for, for, he finds what it's for at the end. Uh, so anyway, I just thought that that was a, a really mm. cool way of uh, describing it. Um but anyway, so you were going on about um, you're about to talk about his mom. So he found a lot of joy in his mom, right? Yes. yes. Um, and actually, they they were a happy family living in Little Lee, and um, which was their family house, and just doing life together with Warren, his his brother, and creating boxing and doing the stuff. But in 1908, uh, tragedy hits. Flora um, dies of cancer, mm-hmm. um, and. On now, this is we don't give the father enough credit because in the same year, Albert loses his wife on his birthday. By the way, died on his birthday. Wow, um, loses his father and his brother. Mm. So Albert goes into this depression, and not only that, he wasn't the person that really handled the boys. It was it was the mom. It was Flora. And so Clive is at at this age kind of struck with tragedy and it was a very very depressing thing for him to watch his father go through and and to deal with with him and his brother Warren at such by the way such a young age remember he's born in 98 his mom passes away when he's 10 years old yes at, at, at 1908 <clears throat> and so he's he's processing this and his dad um, sends them off to boarding school. Yes, because he he doesn't know how to handle and cope with the boys. So well, it's yeah, it's like Albert couldn't figure out how to be mom, right? And um, this affected his faith in a large way. And he, this is this is one of the things I found so cool about his biography. Um, it's circular. Yeah. Like, it comes full circle, and so we're going to tie this into something that happens later on in his life. It's crazy. It, it, so, 
remember. Well, it's only, I think it circles around twice. Well, I'll hit that in a bit too. Okay. But he doesn't process it correctly until the end. Yeah. So the I main think. thing that I want to look at here is the loss yes. of someone close to him. Right. And he doesn't know how to handle it. He doesn't know how to process his faith in God. Right. He doesn't know what God's doing. Um, he said that he prayed, like he was told, if you have faith in something and if you pray hard enough for something, God will bless you with that. Right. And so he took it upon himself to heal his mom yeah. of this cancer. And he prayed earnestly and nightly that she would be healed. And of course she died. Right. And he didn't know how to handle that. Right. So at the age of 10, he's trying to figure out where's God? Right. Like I thought God was a thing. I thought this was supposed to work and it didn't work. And he's already been thinking about this term joy. And so let's remember that he is defining what joy is. Yeah. And so um, so anyway, much later in life, as a middle-aged man, C.S. Lewis writes the the book, uh, The Magician's Nephew, right. which was a prequel to The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe yeah. we were talking about. There is some things in it that comes right out of his childhood. So the main character of The Magician's Nephew is a young boy named Diggory, yeah. who lives with his uncle. Right. And so... Um, he is, he has a sick mom, and um, he goes into another world. Right. He goes into to this pre-Narnia first, but then right. into Narnia, and he visits these other worlds in the other dimensions, and um, he meets this witch, and she basically gives him this promise. She's like, this is a tree of life, and um, if you took one of these fruits to your mom, she would be healed. And um, so there's this temptation, there's this Garden of Eden sure. thing going on right. in it. Uh, well, the little boy you know, basically passes the test, doesn't take the fruit. Um, but at the end of the book, uh, Aslan, the, the lion, the Jesus figure in it, is explaining what that tree of life does. Sure, And he's saying it does what it does. And yes... If you use it for for evil, like if you stole from it, you would never be content. But if you use it for good, if you use it with a, a, a good heart, then it does the same thing, but you would find pleasure in it. And so I want to read a little bit from uh, this, because what he's doing is he's, he's living out what his desire was sure. as a child. He wanted, he wanted God to save his mom. So what does he do? As a middle-aged man, he writes a children's story where God answers the prayer of the little boy whose mother right. is dying. Um, so um, I'm going to read a portion here um, from the end of The Magician's Nephew. Um, so he's confessing to Aslan that he almost ate some of this fruit. He says, I nearly ate one myself, Aslan. Would I? And he says, you would, child, for the fruit always works. It must work, but it does not work happily for any who pluck it at their own will. Mm. 
If any Narnian, unbidden, had stolen an apple and planted it here to protect Narnia, it would have protected Narnia. But it would have done so by making Narnia into another strong and cruel empire like Charn, not the kindly land that I mean it to be. And the witch tempted you to do another thing, my son, did she not? (laughs) Yes, Aslan. She wanted me to take the apple home to my mother. Well, understand then that it would have healed her, but not to your joy or hers. Notice the word. Yes. Joy. It says, the day would have come when both you and she would have looked back and said that it would have been better had I died from this illness. Mm. So deep. This We'll see some of this in his um, A Grief Observed. Yeah. Uh, when we get to that. And Diggory could say nothing, for tears choked him, and he gave up all hope of ever saving his mother's life. But at that same time, he knew that the lion knew what would have happened, Mm. and that there might be things more terrible even than losing someone that you love by death. Mm. But now Aslan was speaking again, almost in a whisper. That is what would have happened, child, with a stolen apple. It is not what will happen now, What I give you now will bring joy. It will not, in your world, give endless life, but it will heal. Go, pluck her an apple from this tree. And for a second, Diggory could hardly understand. (laughs) It was as if the whole world had turned upside down and inside out. And then, like someone in a dream, he was walking across to the tree, and the king and the queen were cheering him, and all the creatures were cheering too, and he plucked the apple and put it in his pocket. Then he came back to Aslan. Please, he said, may we go home now? <laughs> he had forgotten to say thank you, but he meant it, and Aslan understood it. <laughs> so he, he, Oh, so beautiful. He takes the apple home, and he heals his mom. Right. So this is him living out what he couldn't do. With his mother. With his mother. And at the same time, he's addressing morality. Right. He's addressing joy. It's so deep. He's so full of wisdom. It's just, it's right. almost uncomprehensible that his whole life comes together in yep. these writings. So cool. Wow. So for two, so boarding school. For two years, um, and, uh, his his brother Warney is there too uh, for a little bit. He he attends Belson, which is a boarding school. Mm-hmm. Um, he leaves Belson and he goes um, because he had he had developed respiratory problems. Mm-hmm. He couldn't breathe very well, and so they sent him away to Malvern, England, um, to this health resort where he he continued studying at Malvern College, a prep school, um, and then. In 1913, uh, he uh, he uh, right around that time in 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 his book, he says that he's pretty much he abandons the Christian faith. It's right around there. Yeah, actually, that he becomes an atheist. I want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So when he was at the boarding school in England, he was it was a religious college, a religious school. Right. He found the religion dull. And boring. Yes. And he goes there with the rem- with the reminder, with the memory of a dead mom. Right. And a life basically going to crap, right? Right. So... And it's actually at this time that he's really forgetting joy completely. He forgets mm-hmm. boxing. Like, he's not... He's in a 
terrible funk, but go yeah. ahead. So, and he's he is basically seeing what the world is telling him this is Christianity. Right. And it's nothing but rules and it's regulations. An institutionalized thing. Yes. Yeah. And so he's done with it. He's yeah. like, I have I want no part of this. God let my mom die. Right. And this is what I'm supposed to do? Yeah. No. I mean, it's, and it makes perfect sense why he would why he would go that way. Right. Then he is actually he hates school. He hates reading. So you know you can relate, right? <laughs> so he hates um, he hates this this whole boarding school, and he continually wrote his dad, "You got to get me out of here. Right. You got to get me out of here." Finally, dad agrees to take him out of the boarding school mm-hmm. under a private tutor. Old knock or great knock, the great knock <laughs> W. T. Kirkpatrick. Yeah, w- William P- uh, Kirkpatrick. Right. Um, now Kirkpatrick was an atheist. Yes. And so now, under the tutelage of an atheist coming from a Christian boarding school, he's finding respect in a man. Right. And he's listening to what he has to say. Yeah. And so that's building on this whole doubt of of God and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um. So anyway, um, where were you at in your list? Were, uh, were you at Oxford yet? No, uh, 1914. I, I want to stop off in 16. Okay. In 16, something happens to him. He reads George MacDonald for the first time. Yes. George MacDonald is <laughs> C.S. Lewis. In The Great Divorce, there's a scene where he meets a, a mentor. Mm-hmm. And when C.S. Lewis is writing that, he's thinking of George MacDonald. Mm. He he says, and I don't know where he says it, but he, he basically says, I want to walk up to that guy and give him a hug and tell him that, you know, he's the reason that I'm basically here. Yeah. Um, so George MacDonald, he reads George MacDonald's uh, fantasy book, Fantasies, right? Yeah. Um, and it it's just a story about, I mean, if you go and look at it, it it's just a fantasy story about this guy entering fairyland mm-hmm. and going and doing all these mm. crazy fancy things, yeah. right? Yeah. So you get this. There's a pattern emerging. Right. And C.S. Lewis, re, I think he rediscovers at this point, oh, yeah, I had joy. Joy. <laughs> Whenever I was up with uh, Warney and we were checking out boxing, right? And we mm-hmm. were writing all that stuff. I had that. And it was really fun. So he finds joy in literature again. And m- he really loves um, ancient liter- literature, Arthenian legend, um, and, and fantasy. And he becomes a ferocious reader of George MacDonald and all those things. Yeah. Um, and so that's actually... Um, How old is he at this point? Uh, well, t- let's see, 1916. So he's... Let's see, he was born in... 18? 1898. So... Oh, Okay. How old is he? <laughs> yeah. So I can't do like math. Like 17, 18. Yeah, right around that. Um, <laughs> and that's where he he goes to Oxford right around mm-hmm. that time, and he gets his scholarship to go to, to, to Oxford. Um, but and, that only lasts a semester. Right. <laughs> uh, the word he uses, actually, to quote him, he was baptized by imagination, mm. is what C.S. Lewis was. Awesome. So anyways... <laughs> Yeah, in sixteen or nineteen seventeen, he enrolls in Oxford. He's there and immediately enlists. It's been three years since World War One broke out, mm-hmm. and he saw that he needed to perform his duty. So he goes and he enlists, and he fights uh, alongside a friend, uh, Francis Patty Moore, um, and they are. 
in who the went light to, infantry. Went to Oxford with him. Yes. They they decided to uh, do this thing. So in their freshman year, enlisted mm-hmm. and ended up in World War One. Right. <laughs> in the infantry. Yeah. So uh, Patty Moore is killed. Yeah. Um, Lewis is wounded, and then he's he's released. Right. Well, they made a pact. They basically said. So this is yes, and this is very interesting. And it's kind of like, I don't know how much of this is true or not, but go ahead. Well, the pact was if uh, they became really good friends and they they were seeing the horrors of war. Okay, so I want to talk about that for just a second. Oh, man. They were seeing the horrors of war. Trench warfare. Now, you already (laughs) had Lewis in a state of of doubting God. Right. He was becoming um, um, very um, anti-theist. I mean, he's he is really not seeing God's work in anything, right? And watching the atrocities of war is just bolstering this. Mm-hmm. So he and his friend are going through this together, and they make this pact with one another. That basically, says whichever one of if if either one of us die, the other one will take the family of the dead uh, comrade, right, and take care of them. And make them their family. Right. And so... Yeah, and some of that, I mean, whether that's true or not, it, uh, and I don't know if he said ever wrote that, but mm-hmm. a lot of biographers point to that. And yeah. so perhaps that, all we know is they were good friends, and mm-hmm. he did die, uh, Patty died. When he gets back, uh, he writes his his first publication, other than in school magazines, is a publication called Death in Battle. Mm. So that that should tell you exactly where where he is where he is yeah. in his mental state. Um, it's it's tough. So he attends Oxford. He does great. First in honor, um, takes moderations up, Greek takes up and residence. Latin. Yes, he becomes a yeah he becomes a resident scholar there. Uh, he, re- he receives. Um, he's first in English, um, philosophy and ancient history. Like I said, Greek and Latin literature holds honor. Ma, uh, um, he, he just he does really well. He moves in with the Moors. Yes, he is pa- uh, Patty's so mom. He and uh, Mrs. Janie King Moore and her daughter Maureen they move to Oxford, and Lewis lives with the Moors, and then they move to Hillsboro. They eventually purchase, Mrs. Moore purchases it, along with Jack um, and um, his brother, mm-hmm. purchase a, a house they call the uh, Kilns, right? They buy it uh, jointly, and they all move together. So, now, uh, you first off, you got to understand that he was an atheist at the time, and a lot of people, now they look back at this and they see the way the rooms were situated and they see a lot of the <laughs> letters yeah. I was reading today. I'm really shocked that there's m- more than likely he had a romantic relationship with Mrs. Moore, the mother of his, uh, <laughs> his best friend who was killed in battle. <laughs> um, and one of the things they point to besides a lot of documentation and letters that, that show his great affection for her are, um, the fact that their rooms were adjoined mm-hmm. and you couldn't go into C.S. Lewis's room without going through her room first. Yeah, like an old shotgun apartment. And at that age, now this isn't an apartment. This is, this is at the kilns. Right. Okay. So this is their house. Um, and at that 
date and age, it would be unheard of a lady having a, you know what I mean? Yeah. Having a, having a guy come through her room <laughs> to go to bed every night right? and sleep there. And, you know, so there was a lot of question about it. And most of, in fact, uh, her daughter confirmed that they had a romantic relationship. Interesting. Living with them. Yeah. So, um, but again, atheist, not bound by any any of our laws, right? He's very much just not, not in the kingdom. Exactly. And uh but he does, he has a he's surrounded by a loving family. Um the Moors and his brother are with him. He's teaching in Oxford. It seems like everything's going well. Um he writes a whole bunch of uh literature at this time. Mm-hmm. So anything else you want to say about this this era before we jump into his conversion um, yeah i mean uh just a little bit just historically he he gets his degree from oxford right um in 1922 in 1925 he becomes a fellow right at Modlin college right um and so basically is got this nice sweet job right yes um what's interesting though this is like really cool is that his intellect he has this thing of the, this joy thing is still in his head. Right. His intellect and his atheism should have drawn him to a certain crowd. Oh yeah. But it wasn't. Right. Like he found the company of atheists boring. Right. He found joy in the company of Christians. Right. And two among these main ones J.R.R. Tolkien was yeah. was the primary one at this point right um Hugo Dyson yes um so at, at this point like his friends and his interests all led him to these knowledgeable Christians right um it, in fact one of his friends um by the name of uh of Barfield um which he's a great writer too you ought to read him uh, told him like was telling him knowledge is not obtained through books like like learning like knowledge is obtained by your imagination mm. like one when you can start imagining things your knowledge level increases so barfield had this entire uh, th- this philosophy about imagination being the key right. to knowledge and what did C.S. Lewis abound in? I mean, it just rang true in his soul because he was big on imagination. Yes. Especially after He's been building worlds since That's he right. was eight years old. That's right. And so he was attracted to this crowd. Yeah. So, he, And you got to think, Tolkien at the time was the exact same. Mm-hmm. He was building an entire universe, this guy. And he's a genius as far as building his universes right. to the point where he's writing uh, different languages, right? And so, and so even though he was not a theist, he was attracted to stories yeah. about heroes and gods. Right. He started reading Euripides. Yeah. And Euripides began, he, he was thinking, wow, this is what I want. Like, this is joy. Yeah. Like when he's reading all these heroes' journeys and he's reading the, 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 the God's wills and all this stuff, he's feeling the joy again. He's like, this is me. Like, 
It's real. My journey yeah. is in this supernatural realm. There has to be something greater right. than what we're existing here. Yeah. What we're what we're dealing with here. Um it comes to a head in 1929, right? Yeah. And so, well, he even makes a a he even makes a statement that joy he's determining that joy is not the destination. Like he's always thought this longing is where the destination lies, but it's at this point that he starts thinking it's pointing to something else. Yeah. It's the arrow, but not the target. Right. And he's been riding the arrow looking for the target. Right. But he hasn't found it yet. Yeah. So, yeah, okay, so 1929. So, at this point, I mean, he's had conversations after conversations with these guys, Mm -hmm. and he's really coming to the realization that there's something more, especially in this idea of joy. And so, when he talks about it, Trinity term of 1929, Mm -hmm. he says he he gave in. He he gave up. Yes. He, and he describes it as he could see God a long way off coming towards him, and it was this meeting that he did not want to have. Yes. Like, he would turn his back to it, and he would... He, that's where he gets... He's the most reluctant convert in England, right? Yes. He does not want to be converted to... And we're just talking about theism right now. We're not talking about Christianity. Yes. And so, like, he, he, he's, you know... And he'd turn his back, and he'd turn around, and he'd see God was a little closer, and to get him even more riled up to the point where God was standing right there. Yes. And at that point, he gave in. 1931, in his... Wait, hold on. So I want to read this. This is great. Okay. So in 1929, this is what he says in Surprised by Joy. In the Trinity term of 1921, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that was... That was yes. it, right? That was his turning point. But it wasn't still it, Christian God. Exactly. It was God. Yes. So this is, um, he says um, his faith, and he, he struggled with faith, he struggled with charity, yeah. all of that still abounded. Uh, he has not gotten to a place to where Christianity was anything mm-hmm. in his life. This is him... This is such a cool conversion story because it's so methodical <laughs> and it's it's slow. It's a slow burn. So this is just him deciding God has to exist. And he's starting to also identify his issues. Yeah. And pride being one of the mm. primary issues. Uh, pride was identified to him as a besetting sin. Yeah. And he's he's realizing that his reluctancy is his his own uh, pride. But he was hanging out with Tolkien and Dyson, and um, they continued to talk to him about myth. Right. This is so cool. It's like, what did the Apostle Paul do at Mars Hill? <laughs> he used myth. That's exactly right. Right. I mean, this is so smart. <laughs> right. His friends aren't saying, dude, you got to be a Christian. Mm. Instead, what they're doing is they're talking, they're leading him through the stuff they know he's going to be attracted to, the, the things that are, um, the, he's a literary critic. Mm-hmm. So Lewis is a literary critic, and he sees the difference between, um, like he's reading all these historical things. He's reading uh, Euripides, he's reading um, the uh, um, all the, these Greek gods and the stories of myth and all this. Then he reads the New Testament, mm-hmm. and he's and he is seeing a difference. 
because he's a literary critic right. at this point. He's a fellow at Maudlin College. Yeah. And he's going, okay, the difference between Euripides and the New Testament is that one of them is myth and story. The other one is eyewitness account. Right. It's presented as eyewitness account. It's not presented as myth. Myth. It's not right. presented as, um, as y- y- you know, l- the, 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 the chase after the golden fleece or anything like that. The it's, epic. Right. It's, pre- it's presented as eyewitness account. Right. One that he couldn't logically disprove. Right. And... So there's so much logic going on in his... Um, and there's something to be said for myth here, by the way. <clears throat> I, um, oh, what's the name of the guy who wrote the book? Joseph Campbell. About the hero's... No, the yeah, hero's that's the journey. hero's journey. Yes. Mm-hmm. Joseph Campbell. The idea is, I mean, if you look at all myth and you look at all great epic, mm-hmm. it all points to Christ. It's yes. all a picture of God and his universe and what he did through the redeeming work on the cross. And you can take this into any story and you can see it. And Lewis is seeing it because that's what he surrounded. That's his world. Yes. Right? And so the more he's seeing it, the more he cannot deny it. So um, I love that his conversion, like you think of, like, for example, Saint Augustine, yeah, the voice of the child. Like there was this, <laughs> there was this so moment where it went bloop, and the light switch came on. It, just happened, it doesn't man. happen that way with Lewis. No, it's a long. He is a reluctant conversion. That's right. So he he is hanging out with Tolkien and Dyson <laughs> late and, into the evening, and these guys. Okay, so one day they go on a walk, right? And it's it's just those three, and they're talking about this stuff, and of course Tolkien is talking about his Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. And um, he said at one point they stopped on their walk because it was a calm, warm day. And all of a sudden, a wind came out of nowhere yeah. and blasted all the trees and leaves fell like rain. He was, it was the most amazing thing he had ever experienced in nature Yeah, while they were talking about Christianity. Mm. And so he was standing there staring up at all these leaves falling around him thinking, what just happened, Mm. right? And then do you have his actual conversion moment? What he claims to be his conversion moment? Yeah, so the next day, he and Warney decide to go to the zoo on a motorcycle. And uh, and this is what he says, and surprised by joy, this is the quote, when we set out um, on the motorcycle to Whipsnade Zoo, I did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. He expresses that when they left, when they began, they were in a fog. Right. And they were driving in the fog. Yeah. And when they got to the zoo, it was bright, shiny, beautiful day. <laughs> yeah. It's like it lifted. Like so, as the fog so natural, like as the fog lifted, so did the cloud over his soul. Yeah. Like he came to Christ mm. as that fog lifted. Yeah, I just think that was a beautiful, yeah. poetic way for <laughs> for for a literary, sure, imaginative seeker of joy yes. to find it. Which, by the way, this concludes his journey of joy. Yeah, he. Like he talks about joy going forward, but he leaves the quest for it 
Right. Because he felt like he hit the target. He he obtained it. Yes, joy had been fulfilled at this right. point. Wow. Okay. So uh So now he's hanging out with by 1933 uh actually um for the next 16 years uh starting in the fall term he starts meeting with the Inklings, right? Which is Hugo Dyson, mm-hmm. Owen Barfield, we mm-hmm. mentioned a while ago, Charles Williams, J.R.R. Tolkien, his brother Warren, and himself. Right. Uh, they they meet together in Jack's room at uh, Medlin College, and then Thursday evenings just before lunch, Mondays or Fridays, and then in a back room at The Eagle and the Child, which... Everybody calls the bird and the baby, <laughs> and they discuss literature. And mm-hmm. I can, I just, I would love to be a fly on the wall, sitting there and seeing these great, brilliant literary minds discussing literature. Mm-hmm. Just the way that works, so, good. so powerful. So, um, so um, at one at one point, Tolkien and Lewis. Make an agreement. Yes, they do. That's right. They're like, okay, here's what we want to do. We want to write trilogies. Mm -hmm. You take, or one of us will take a trilogy about space, space, and the other one is we'll take one about time. Time. Yeah. And so they flip a quarter or flip a coin to determine who's going to get what. Right. And Tolkien uh, got the choice to take. Time, time mm-hmm. and Lewis got the one about space, right? Which I really wish Tolkien would have uh, done his part, which he didn't. Right? He started, but he never finished. No, that's the Lord of the Rings. the 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 whole Lord of the Rings thing was about this Middle Earth setting. Was so the trilogy? I thought no, no, no. I thought it was uh, he was going to connect his Middle Earth to our world through time. Yeah, I don't think he had written Lord of the Rings yet. Oh, okay, maybe I'm wrong. Michael, I, I might be, wrong. Michael, I'm sure Michael, can you, you know solve this? that for us. Yeah. Let us know because it might have been the Lord of the Rings. Because show, what yeah. what I read was that Tolkien did the Lord of the Rings, yeah. and um, and Lewis did out of the Silent Planet. The yes, the Space Trilogy, right. which is not very popular. No, like you, you can hardly find it. But if you do, it's a rewarding read. Yeah, um, the first two books especially. I haven't read Hideous Strength yet. I'm I'm working on it. Out of the Silent Planet is genius work. Yes, I just I love it. It's very good. Paralandra, I'm I'm growing to love. I'm reading it. Oh man, right Paralandra is amazing. Yeah, like it. Okay, so here's one thing that, and since we're talking about Lewis and not Tolkien, um, <laughs> here's one thing that Lewis did with his trilogy, and you can see it very clearly as you're reading through it. If you read it book by book, you'll see Out of the Silent Planet is very methodical. Mm-hmm. There are hints of faith in it, but it's not direct in right. any way, shape, or form. Yeah. The closest it comes is when he's actually talking with the... Oh, what's it called? Oh, uh, Osaka. Uh, yes, I can't remember the next... The, Osara, whatever. So... At the end of the book. Yes, the god figure yeah. in, in, the, um, in the book. But then when we get to Paralandra, it's a flat-out Adam and Eve story. Right. And it's a fall. Like and he shows it. Yes, and it's very clear as you're reading it that this is the fall of man right. for the Venusians, the right. Venus, <laughs> those in, on Venus. Right. And uh, so, anyway, it's it's what Lewis is discovering is that he can, through fantasy and science fiction, and his love of 
of imagination, he can tell the story of Christ Mm -hmm. and he can exemplify his faith. Mm -hmm. And he's a new convert. So yes, this is exciting stuff to him. So it starts bleeding through the writings. Oh, yeah. And the more and more he's writing, the more actually he gets into theology Mm -hmm. um, and uh, apologetics. And so we'll see that play out in... Uh, in his later works, but yeah. So, uh, well, one of the first things he writes is the four loves, right? Um, which I have a little bit here. I want to look at. Um, Sweet. So, th- the four loves is a study of so deep, but it's one of the very first that I know of examinations of the different loves exemplified in the Greek language. So he talks about uh, storge, which isn't really mentioned in the Bible, uh, but Phileo, which is Eros, which I think briefly, like there's one passage or something. And then, um, and then Agape, which is all over the New Testament. Right. Um, and the whole point of this book is, and you really get it when you get to chapter four, which is the fourth love, Agape, Agape, uh, which in this, uh, version I have, it just labels it as charity. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's what he calls it, pretty much. Yeah. Yes. So, well, and he gets that from the King James language, right? Um, but the the point of the book is this: that he 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 looks at in depth. He looks at what these loves do, what the story gave, which is the fa- family love. Mm-hmm. He looks at the next chapter. He looks at phileo, which is the brotherly, brotherly love, side to side, the, the friendly love. Right. Yeah. Um, and then he looks at eros, which is the sexual or Husband, wife, love, front to front. (laughs) I love that whole (laughs) analogy. So, and then of course the last one is the love of God, which is charity. So, I want to read a little bit here from the first part of that chapter. It says William Morris wrote a poem called "Love Is Enough," and someone is said to have received or reviewed it briefly in the words, "It isn't." (laughs) That's so good. Such has been the burden of this book. <laughs> the natural loves are not self-sufficient. Something else, at first vaguely described as decency and common sense, but later revealed as goodness, and finally as the whole Christian life in one particular relation, must come to the help of the mere feeling if the feeling is to be kept sweet. To say this is not to belittle the natural loves, but to indicate where their real glory lies. Mm -hmm. This is so cool. (laughs) It is no disparagement to a garden to say that it will not fence and weed itself, nor prune its own fruit trees, nor roll and cut its own lawns. A garden is a good thing, but that is not the sort of goodness it has. It will remain a garden as distinct from a wilderness only if someone does all these things to it. Its real glory is of quite a different kind. The very fact that it needs constant weeding and pruning bears witness to that glory. It teems with life. It glows with color and smells like heaven and puts forward at every hour of a summer day beauties which man could never have created and could not even on his own resources have imagined. If you want to see the difference between its contribution and the gardener's, 
put the commonest weed it grows side by side with his hose, rakes, shears, and packet of weed killer. You have put beauty, energy, and fecundity beside dead, sterile things. Just so our decency and common sense show gray and death-like beside the geniality of love. Mm. And when the garden is in full glory, the gardener's contributions to that glory will still have been, in a sense, paltry compared with those of nature. Mm. So the whole point is he's saying is like these natural loves aren't enough because on their own, they're weeds and they're, and they, they're beautiful. But if they're not shaped, they don't become a garden. Right. And is and the whole point of this third or this fourth love is that the love of God mm. takes what is naturally wild and beautiful and makes it into something that is cultured and beautiful and something that is is made into something even more beautiful by its handiwork or by, yes. by his handiwork. Uh, such a really cool insight. Beautiful. And so he talks also a lot about pride Mm -hmm. in all this because he sees that as his besetting sin. And so uh, just so much uh, going on in here. Um, So do you have anything before World War II happens? Uh, Not really. I mean, that's his his main work right there before World War II. Mm -hmm. Right uh, right in the wake of World War II, he publishes uh, Screwtape. Right. Yes. Well, which... actually, it wasn't published originally. It was, yeah, it was, it was a weekly mm-hmm. installment in a newspaper, um, which was absolutely powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so good. Um, let's see. He tried to enlist in World War II, and they didn't let him. Um, and so he he actually took in some refugees from London. I think. Yes, he took he took in four evacuees. Right. Children. Um, and they were sent to <laughs> Does live. That sound anything like what you've read? <laughs> they were sent to live with Lewis and the Moors. Yes. He's still living with the Moors at this time, and it was this that inspired a very popular book that he wrote. Uh, in fact, it came from one of the children asked what was behind the wardrobe, mm-hmm. and if that if it led anywhere special. <laughs> And so, as you can see, this spurred his imagination. Right. And he, of course, wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Right. As a and inspiration. It's interesting to note, if you actually read read the book, spoiler alert, by the way, yeah. uh, that the professor who the four end up living with is Diggory. <laughs> right. Right? Right. And he, you know, when he was a boy... It was he buried the the rings yes in a yes. under a tree under the tree that was born from the apple that's right that he fed his mom exactly and then he cut it down and created a wardrobe out of it and that's how <laughs> Narnia that's the passage of so Narnia that's yeah. brilliant anyways the guy's genius um so yes uh, 1941 from May 2nd until November 28th the Guardian publishes. 31 letters in a weekly installment and it's from one demon to another demon. Yes. And it becomes known as the screw tape letters. Um, he was paid two pounds for each letter (laughs) and he gave (laughs) it to charity. (laughs) Um, he also did radio talks for the BBC during this time. Yes. Became known as right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And then later they published those. Published in into what we now call mere, mere Christianity, Christianity, that's right. Which is one of the foremost apologetic works you can find. Yes, and so 
Anything you want to read from Mere Christianity? Definitely. You got something? Okay. Uh, one of the things, though, I want to mention, though, is that uh, although he wrote the Narnia stories up to this point, between 1939 and 1945, he produced the world's largest single author collection <laughs> of apologetic writings. In fact, his his um, his friends thought he was crazy. He was like, you're writing too much theology. You need to go back to storytelling. You right. Know? Um, but as a result, we have tons of really wise the- or apologetics. Right. Um, so, yeah, to give you just a, a sample of mere Christianity, mm. um, I love this. He mentions George MacDonald mm-hmm. in this, so I, th- I thought it would, would be very fitting to uh, bring this in. It's one of my favorite quotes from mere Christianity. Um, because one of the things I think that Lewis really got was God's plan for us? Yes. Like, and, and I think a lot of that comes from his his journey from uh, losing his mom, the search for joy, and realizing what God is doing with us. Mm. Uh, so he says here, I find I must borrow yet another parable from George MacDonald. <laughs> Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes to rebuild that home. At first, perhaps. You can understand what he's doing. He is getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace Mm. and he intends to come and live in it Mm. himself. Mm. (laughs) I just thought that's beautiful. (laughs) So good. For me, uh, Mere Christianity was the first time I really got the concept of how to philosophically argue for my faith. And mm. uh, one of the biggest points he pushes throughout the book is this concept of um, morality and where it comes from. Yes. This idea that there has yes. to be something outside of culture and <clears throat> it has to be something outside of our uh, um, civilization that pushes for morality. And it's something that's written on our hearts. That's, it's not just a bunch of laws that are created by the government. No, that there's something beyond it. And if there's not, then then everything breaks down. Mm. So there has to be some kind of a moral um, work behind the scenes going on. And that in itself is the explanation for God. And so that blew me away when I first first read it. Uh, it's been a long time since I've read Mary Christianity. I need yeah, to go back to it. It's really good. But. And you can actually find some of the recordings that have survived um, and actually listen to him talk. Oh, on, you really can find cool. them on YouTube and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. There's actually a really cool YouTube channel out there um, that I'll promote called C.S. Doodles. Maybe C.S. Lewis Doodles. C.S. Lewis Doodles or something like that. Anyway, what it is is it's someone he's drawing, diagramming, as C.S. Lewis is talking. talking. Now, some of it is the reading yeah. of Mere Christianity with someone with a British accent. But <laughs> sure. But anyway, it's really good, and it's uh, illustrative. Like, it really gives you a good 
<clears throat> view of what he's saying. Sure. Uh, so yeah, you might check that out at some point. Um, Anything you want to say about screw tape before we move on? Because it's just so dang good. I love screw tape, and I was going to like uh, pick some passages to read from it, but um, I just I didn't I didn't have time to find what I really wanted, which was I wanted to talk about um, this this whole concept of um, of the subtlety of sin and the subtlety of of what attracts us. Yeah, that we think of Satan. As the big red demon, you know that that would be scary, but he's really the attractive, right? You know, and Lewis, I mean, in in a uh, in Screw Tape's voice, Lewis uh, puts it like this. He says, you know, there's two things that we can do wrong whenever we consider Satan. The first one is to not give him any credit at all and consider him myth and fake. The second thing is to give him way too much credit right. and to consider him this, you know, great foe. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so it's which both are very brilliant. Well, I, I do like that um that Lewis chose a Luther quote, a Martin Luther quote, yeah. um, at the beginning of his book. And that quote is the best way to drive out the devil, if he will not yield to text of scripture, is to jeer and flout him. For he cannot bear scorn, and that's exactly what this book is. <laughs> We've got to talk about Luther at some point. Have we already done Luther as like a person? Or well, we did the Reformation, the Reformation one. thing, but we could. Oh my focus gosh, on him. his whole flagellance thing and cursing <laughs> demons while he was doing it—it's so good. Anyway, so the um, the last major point uh, of his life that I want to talk about is where I was talking about it coming full circle, mm. which is remember his quests. For joy. Well, at this point, he is a middle-aged man. In fact, you know, he's in his 50s. And right. he, um, he's been a uh, confirmed bachelor, you know, his <laughs> entire life. Yeah, in 51, uh, Mrs. Moore died. But mm-hmm. they had kind of had a falling out. In fact, she made him... <laughs> She made him make a door to his room so that he, so he couldn't walk, he couldn't through, walk her. through her room anymore <laughs> at some point there. And I think part of it had to do with his conversion. Oh, gotcha. And yeah. so he felt, I, I think he, he was realizing sin. Convicted. In convicted. His, yeah. And so I think they had a, but he did stay true to, he was faithful in visiting her. Actually, she went in a nursing home a mm-hmm. year before she passed and he was faithful in visiting her. Every every day or at least once a week, you know, and, yeah. and making sure she was taken care of, took care of her family and all that. So he was faithful to the end. But he was a confirmed bachelor besides yes. that. <laughs> and he um, he was also gaining notoriety, mm-hmm. and he was getting a lot of letters. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the regular writers to him was an American atheist mm-hmm. uh, by the name of Joy of Joy Davidson, um, which is so ironic. Helen Joy Davidson, I believe, is her full name. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, she was an American atheist converted to Christianity, and she wrote Lewis and basically s- said, "It's your writings that helped lead me to know Christ." Mm-hmm. And so she gave him a lot of credit. And um, anyway, she. Um, she came to be friends with him. Right. And um, so 
I believe I'm trying to think it was Barfield, I think, that described the relationship as dielectric obstetrics. <laughs> obstetrics. <laughs> so it's a big, wow. big term for basically it boiled down to this. She was a knowledgeable woman and he was a knowledgeable man. And their brain waves clicked. Yeah. And now she was uh, quite a bit younger than than him. Warney said that it was her definitely her intellect and then her um, sense of humor that really drove him to to actually fall in love with her. Yeah. So, anyways, so um, she has bone cancer. Yeah. And um, oh, uh, so back up. She goes to America, or she goes to England. Yeah. She's fleeing her husband, or not fleeing, but leaving because he was an abusive. She she was in an abusive relationship. Right. Her husband was beating her, and she goes to England. Right. She has two children, mm-hmm. David and Douglas. Right. Um, so yeah, she comes to England and, um, and she befriends Lewis, um, and they have this friendly relationship. Um, she gets bone cancer and, um, he, I can't remember exactly how it worked, but she was in the hospital and he was afraid that she was going to die and that she was going to be deported while in this condition. So he agrees to marry her. Um, for basically, I say political reasons, but uh, not really to to keep her from being deported. Um, however, he starts to discover that he's actually in love with this woman. Like, like this is more than just a friendship, and uh, and he was stating that his predicament because she's dying of bone cancer, and he realizes that. When he marries her, he marries her in the hospital. Right. And um, he's thinking, I'm going to be a bridegroom and a widower, like back to back. And this is kind of tearing him up. So he he goes. Well, hold on. Let me, let me back up. Okay. Actually, uh, so on April 23rd, he does the civil marriage. At Oxford Registry Office. Oh, okay. Before so, the before the actual okay, gotcha. marriage. So he does that just to keep her there because they're worried. And then she gets worse with the bone cancer. Yeah. And so they're in the hospital and they do the bedside ceremony. Ceremony yeah. because he realizes his love and his affection for her. So yes. go go on there. Okay, so um anyway, he he turns to God again. Okay, now this is very reminiscent of his time with his mother, right? Right. His mother died of cancer, Mm. and he prayed earnestly Mm. that God would heal her. Mm -hmm. And um, so he takes a shot at this again. This time, she goes into remission. Right. Well, they were expecting her to die within days. Yes. Yes. And she has this dramatic change for, for a whole nother... Yeah, she goes on her mission. Yes, they have a uh, two, three years together, mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, so and so, she moves into his home uh, with her children, right? And um, so they have this this very short but uh, romantic relationship uh, that's very full of life. She brings a lot of life to him um, in that she's very uplifting, playful. Um, She's not like his counterparts 
at maudlin, right? right. <laughs> and she's an American. She's very outspoken, um, this sort of thing. And um, in but uh, she is she ends up succumbing to uh, the cancer. It returns. Um, but before she dies, um, there there is a play about this, by the way called Shadowlands. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a while since I've seen it, but if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's been made into a movie twice. Mm-hmm. There's a BBC version, and then there is a Hollywood version with um, Anthony Hopkins playing C.S. Lewis and Deborah Winger playing Joy Davidson. Yeah, And um, there's a scene in the play that I just, I really love. Um, they're out for a walk, and it's a rainy it starts to cloud up and rain on them and they're like really enjoying nature together. And, uh, they take cover in this barn and it's raining and she basically wants to have a serious conversation. She's basically saying, we really need to talk about what you're going to do after I pass. And he's like, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to ruin this moment. Like we're, we're having a moment and we're happy. I don't want to talk about this. And her response is it doesn't have to be that way. Like she brings a, a, a second level of knowledge about life to him. Yeah. And she said, the, the talking about the death now makes the joy even better then. Like, like, th- like it's all together. And we need to be open and talk about this. And because that's life and we need to enjoy it together. And so he basically succumbs to her desire to do this and really realizes after she's gone the wisdom in what she was saying that she wanted him to be a part of her death. Like he just, she didn't want him to just, you know, mourn her. He wanted her or she wanted him to live with him through that entire process. Right. And that's a painful thing to, to, to succumb to, mm. um, but anyway, she does. She dies in 1960, um, right after this whirlwind tour. They took a they they went to <clears throat> to Greece, to Greece, yes. Athens, uh, Rhodes. I mean, they they went through all all of Greece and then came back. They had one day stop in Pisa uh, <laughs> on their return, and Joy died on July 13th, the mm. age of 45 pretty young yes um and it was you know it's it's just a sad sad thing his life was kind of gripped with tragedy as it far as, as women were concerned his mother mm-hmm. uh miss moore and and joy and uh and I, I just think it's very ironic that her name is joy i know and he um his friend, this wasn't lost on his friends. Like right. his friends were like, Joy, really? Like that's the girl you're falling in love with? <laughs> and you wrote a book called Surprised, Surprised by, by Joy. Joy. Yeah. I mean, it's like they they sure. definitely uh, were, this is like so uncanny. Yeah. Um, but Joy's death gives him. Like, I love this book, by the way. It's called A Grief Observed. So when he wrote this, he wrote it under a pseudonym. Yes, he did. And the reason that am I stepping on your No, go ahead. Okay. So he wrote it under pseudonym because it was so open heart for him mm-hmm. in expressing it. They really actually didn't originally want it associated with him. 
Right. So he had friends bringing him copies of the book after Joy passed. Yes, yeah, saying here you got to read this. You've got to read this. <laughs> which is so ironic. Can you imagine writing a book and have friends yeah. go, "You I understand you're struggling. Here's your, you know, you need to read this book." Yeah. <laughs> you're like, "I I wrote it." Yeah. That's it's, awesome. Yeah. And, and I told you that the forward in this copy I have is written by Madeline Langle. Yeah. Um who actually says that I first read this book Without knowing it was C.S. Lewis, yeah. like I read it under the pseudonym uh, N.W. Clerk, yeah, uh, was the name he wrote it. Right, and and she was like, Man, at the time I didn't give it much thought. Then she lost her husband, yeah, and she read this again, knowing it was C.S. Lewis, and um, and she talks about how it helped her uh, through that process, mm. which is interesting because there's little, like this is an honest writing. Mm-hmm. And the reason I think largely why he wrote it under a pseudonym because here he is a renowned apologetic uh, apologist and he is writing a book that is in essence doubting God right like if you read through this uh, the part I want to read is or one of the parts I want to read here you can hear his honest faith being questioned, like the the doubting that's happening. So he says, um, meanwhile, where is God? This this is one, this is a question he had early as a child when he lost his mom. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you are an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. What do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. Mm. You may as well turn away, because the longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It may be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present, a commander in our time of prosperity, and so very absent a help in time of trouble? He says, I tried to put some of these thoughts to sea this afternoon. He, because he doesn't give names in this mm-hmm. book, by the way, he gives them first initials. He reminded me that the same thing, the same thing seems to have happened to Christ. Why hast thou forsaken me? I know. Does that make it easier to understand? <laughs> Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not so there's no God after all, but so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. <laughs> So this is some dark stuff, Um, but, and I would like to say it ends on a happy note, but it really, it really doesn't, but it does end on an observation. Mm -hmm. 
and that is the faith of his wife. Like he saw what she was going through the moment that she passed. And I think that largely helped him understand the darkness Mm. that he was in. He says, didn't people, this is the end of the book. Didn't people dispute once whether the final vision of God was more an act of intelligence or of love? That is probably just another of the nonsense questions. Mm. How wicked it would be. Oh, so by the way, let me back up just a second. He, he is saying, right before he gets to this point, he is, is telling her. Um, in fact, let me read it. It says, um, once very near the end, I said, if you can, if it is allowed, come to me when I too am on my deathbed. Allowed, she said. Heaven would have a job to hold me. (laughs) As for hell, I'd break it to bits. (laughs) She knew that she was speaking a kind of mythological language with even an element of comedy in it. And there was a twinkle as well as a tear in her eye. But there was no myth and no joke about the will deeper than any feeling that flashed through her. Mm. So it says here at the very end of the book, how wicked it would be if we could to call that dead back. She said, not to me, but to the chaplain, I'm at peace with God. And she smiled, but not at me. <laughs> That's the end of the book. <laughs> right. And, uh, but he's basically saying that she found peace at the end. Like she knew that there was something greater. Joy. Right? Like that's the target. The target. Like she knew there was something beyond what they were experiencing right now. And later on he he wrote, and I can't remember exactly where it was he wrote about this, but he said it was as if I was in the dark. And at the time I thought I was in a dank cellar with no way out, locked in. But then in the distance. I heard the sound of birds chirping and animals croaking. And it was at that moment I realized I was not in a dank cellar, but in the wide open space, Mm. even though it was dark. So basically he was saying, I'm not trapped here. There is life around me. I just can't see it. Yeah. Um, Man. Such a, a life full of, of wisdom. Yeah. He, um, so at, in 1963, three years after Joy passed, um, he, he dies suddenly in his home. Um, one week before his 65th birthday, mm-hmm. he divide, died on November 22nd, which is actually a pretty famous day here. It's when yes. John F. Kennedy passed away. Same day. They died within an hour of each other. <laughs> wow. And also, Aldous Huxley, who wrote A Brave New World, which is yes. one of the greatest uh, dystopian mm-hmm. uh, novels of all time, he passed away on the same day. Who was it that wrote an an allegorical story of, or not an allegorical, but a uh, mythological story of C.S. Lewis, John F. Kennedy, and LDS Huxley meeting together. Oh, really? In the I, waiting place before heaven and hell. Really? And I don't. I, I don't know that writing. Go look that up. It's somewhere. <laughs> but uh, anyways, um, but 
he, you know, his death was kind of overshadowed, mm-hmm. which is pretty interesting because of John F. Kennedy, of course. Right. I mean, everybody was blown away by that. And so uh, just you look back at his life and it's kind of fitting <laughs> the way he passes like that. And it's sudden. Like, it's just not... Not even. He doesn't have a prolonged. I mean, he does have. He goes. He goes through like the year before. He went through. He had heart issues. He right. went through a, a coma. Right. Um. Came out of it. Yep. Seemingly fine, no. and then died a year later. Amazing man, <clears throat> and his his legacy lives on in his writings. Uh, so go check him out. Um. Pretty awesome. Yeah. So. Anyways, well, we've been at this for an hour and a half. So no news it's, tonight. It's a. Um, I'm a happy camper with no news actually. An, Awesome life <laughs> observed. Yes. <laughs> and if you have never read any C.S. Lewis, dude, put that on your list. And make it the first thing. <laughs> it is so good. It is some really good stuff. Yeah. I'm just, every time I read it and I read his stuff again, it just blows me away yeah. at how insightful and how analytical it is and deep. But emotional. Yes. At the same time. Oh, it's so good. Oh. Uh. I love it. Very good. So uh, I'm going to have to pass this thing back and forth because... This is hilarious. Here we yeah, go. So the printouts are missing. So where's my button? The Theonauts are part of the Great Commission Transmission Network using new media and social networking to go into all the world and proclaim the good news to everyone. To find out more, go to gctnetwork.com, subscribe to the newsletter, and stay up to date with all our podcast shows, including Finding Christ in Cinema and the Secret Fire Podcast. Visit our website at theonautspodcast.com for show notes and outlines. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or your favorite podcast catcher. Be sure to rate us because that helps us reach a larger audience. There are several ways that you can contact us. Leave us feedback. Send us an email to theonauts at gctnetwork.com or call us on our voicemail line, 972-885-7270. Tweet to us on Twitter using at Theonautical. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theonauts. And if you like us and want even more Theonauts, drop us a buck or two at patreon.com slash theonauts. Your patronage helps in our expenses like hosting fees and equipment costs. <laughs> Don't forget to tune in again and explore the vast reaches of God's Word with us. All right, Jeremiah, thanks for being here, my Thank fellow you, Narnian. <laughs> Oops, what happened to the sound? There it's it right there. There it is. Let's go into that wardrobe over there. Do the wardrobe. I have a feeling that uh, Narnia waits. <laughs> Mr. Tumnus, is that you? Bring me some Turkish delight. <laughs> <laughs> you are tuned in to the GCT Network. This is your Great Commission Transmission. At GCTNetwork.com. They're possibly cloning an army of giant Al Qaeda guys. Uh.